Hello. You are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. A space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Arts and Letters in the Maghreb and was recorded on November the 8th, 2018 at the Centre d'études Maghrebines à Tunis Semat. In this episode, Paras Catolan, a PhD candidate at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, talks about the Mat for Maghreb Generation, the Maghreb and the Pan-African Cultural Project. I gave a podcast here in June about the Pan-African Festival of Algiers in 1969. And I want to start with an anecdote just to situate where the intellectual debate is. So on July 21st, 1969, the president of Algeria, Houari Boumediene, inaugurated the first Pan-African Festival of Algiers with a powerful recognition of what many people called at the time the colonization of consciousness. He said that in addition to taking life and exploiting bodies, Colonialism also killed your soul. It wasn't just your labor. He declaimed this to a crowd of officials and artists from across Africa and around the world, um, particularly the African diaspora. For many of those present at the festival, the question of the decolonization of the mind and of how to liberate one's thoughts and culture from colonialism was of utmost urgency. Studies on decolonization in Africa have overwhelmingly focused on institutional formation and political change, and have kind of forgotten to look at the way our psychologies deal with decolonization. And so my work really turns to these surviving souls who insisted that cultural liberation was just as crucial as political independence, and, and continued well beyond political independence. And Boumedien continued, these souls can and must be recovered. Africans can only do so together. For African unity, cultural Africanist is a reality forged through historical events on a common land by men destined to the same future. And with these words, he acknowledged a generation of artist militants, of guerrilla poets from across Africa and the Americas, who had found a home in the Maghreb, a home to organize from, to write in, to think about, a home in which to prepare the future. That's why this talk is called The Mad for Maghreb Generation. It's about a generation of people from Africa and from the Americas who found a home in the Maghreb and used it as a base to think about decolonizing the mind. Despite its prime location in the Mediterranean and its long history as a crossroads between the Middle East, Africa, and Europe, North Africa has unfortunately remained marginal to the historiographies of all those regions. And contrary to what many scholars on Pan-Africanism have assumed, Racial distinctions bolstered by the colonial empires didn't prevent Africans from reaching across the Saharan Divide and challenging notions of race and identity from the colonial period. And in fact, upon independence, the Moroccan, Algerian, and Tunisian governments themselves, eager to emerge as world leaders and to some extent unable to leverage real power in the Middle East, compared to Egypt, for example, or other countries in the Middle East, they turned south and offered military and financial aid and support to ongoing liberation struggles in Africa, as well as in the Americas. So South, in a kind of more um, figurative way, rather than necessarily geographical. This official support created spaces of encounter between Maghrebi, Black African, and diaspora artists, spawning a network of artists for whom African liberation, guerrilla violence, and poetry, and the arts, as we'll see, was intimately intertwined. My work explores conversations occurring in multiple languages, in French and English and Arabic and Portuguese, sometimes even in Italian and Spanish, through a variety of mediums, mostly poetry and film, across thousands of miles of ocean. But unlike Edwards and Gilroy and the rest of the movement of the Black Atlantic, I move away from the colonial metropoles of Paris, London, or New York, and I argue that the three Maghrebi countries, Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, 
newly delivered from the colonial yoke, functioned as liberated spaces in which to imagine a variety of communities, some transnational, pan-African or third-worldist, others decidedly nationalistic, Black American, Angolan, Mozambican. And so these conversations occurring in and around the Maghreb built the first blocks of an Atlantic culture that transcended race and ethnicity, or even nationality at times. But I think that these debates, this is in the 1960s and 70s, but I think that they were ultimately shut down by the Maghreb and other African countries' increasingly repressive regimes, and little traces remain of these conversations, even in history books. So in a podcast I gave for the Simat in May, I offered a window into Algiers, or the city that uh, Cap Verdean revolutionary Amit Cabral called the Mecca of revolutionaries. I looked at interactions between artists during the Pan-African Festival of Algiers in 1969. But today I want to move away from Algeria, which... In recent years, there's been a blossoming interest in the role that Algeria played in fostering freedom fighters from around the world. Books like these uh, by Jeffrey James Byrne or The Mecca of Revolution or uh, Elaine Moktafi, who was in Algeria for about 20 years. Her book just came out this spring, Algiers' Third World Capital. She was kind of like the interpret and for the Black Panthers in Algiers. They've established Algeria as a hub of revolutionary activity and as a key player in determining the ideology and composition of the third world or pan-African community. Algeria hosted what Burns calls the Pied Rouge, or Red Feet, to play on Pied Noir, which were the, the French who immigrated out of Algeria once Algeria gained its independence. So the Pied Rouge was a babble of leftists, revolutionaries, and other idealists from around the globe who were drawn by the country's reputation as the Mecca of revolutionaries. The blossoming of personal accounts and historic monographs dedicated to Algeria's support of third world liberation struggles has motivated Moroccan and Tunisian governments and officials to stake their own historical claims as revolutionary facilitators. When I was in Morocco in February, the Royal Library of Morocco was hosting a conference on Morocco's assistance to the former Portuguese colonies under the high patronage of Mohammed VI. And actually right now, at this very instant, um, in downtown Tunis, there's uh, hundreds of Tunisians and Africans are celebrating the JCC, confirming what the festival director, Najiba Yad, wrote in the festival's catalog, the festival's African and Arab vocation. So by inviting uh, you know, a lot of Arab and African guests to participate and also films in, in the competition. But unfortunately, Morocco and Tunisia are often eclipsed by their more revolutionary neighbor when it comes to the history of pan-Africanism. And scholars have really ignored the fact that even before Algeria gained its independence, the independent Morocco and Algeria, who remember got their independence you know, five or six years earlier than Algeria, actually hosted their own Pied Rouge and, in fact, trained Algerian freedom fighters in camps along the Algerian border. I mean, France Fanon was in, in Tunisia. Many of the Algerian freedom fighters were, were trained in camps near Wujda in, in Morocco. So we, we can't really ignore the role that these other two Maghrebis played in the 1960s. And while eventually I will have a lot more to say about Tunisia's role, I'm still kind of in the midst of the research. So today I'm going to center on Morocco, because the, the research on Tunisia is a little too fresh to present. So, as I said, very little has been written about Morocco's role in assisting the liberation struggles in sub-Saharan Africa. And perhaps this is partly due to the fact that Morocco's help was much more discreet than Algeria's and was actively debated within the Moroccan administration. It may also be of an effect of the lack of sources. The Moroccan National Archives had kept no records of the government's financial or administrative assistance to African liberation groups, or at least no archives that are accessible to the public. When I went there, like, oh, they burned down or they had some excuses. They sent me to the archives in Nantes, which is where I'm from, actually. And you can find, indeed, some traces of Morocco's involvement in the Nantes diplomatic archives. But most of the documents were issued by the French embassies in Morocco and were intended for French foreign services, so they carry a strong French bias. 
and really tend to underestimate Morocco's anti-Western tendencies because it seems like France was really determined to think of Morocco as an ally in comparison to its bellicose neighbor, Algeria. Other information comes from the offices of the CONCP, the Conference and National Organization of the Portuguese Colonies, established in Casablanca in April 1961, but very few of their pamphlets have been conserved. Together with the testimonies of some of the leaders or the family members of these liberation movements, these sources give a glimpse into the rich history of the network of militants from the Portuguese colonies, using Rabat as a home base to plan and preach decolonization and African liberation. Mohammed V, the first king of independent Morocco, was a source of inspiration amongst many of the young militants from the African continent. His triumphant return to Rabat on November 16, 1955, and his proclamation of Moroccan independence was filmed and transmitted across Africa and Europe. To go in intellectual and militant Aquino de Braganza and Mozambican poet Marcelino dos Santos, the return of the king of Morocco would be one of their first victories in their two-decade-long struggle against colonialism. In the early 1950s, Braganza and Dos Santos lived in the Moroccan house of the Paris Cité Universitaire and attended the Institute of Political Science and the Université Nouvelle. In July 1954, Mario Pinto de Andrade arrived in Paris, dressed in overalls, hopeless and in dire need of a place to stay. Braganza and Dos Santos let him settle in their room clandestinely at the Moroccan house. So the three of them lived for a few months there in the Moroccan house of the Cité Universitaire, where they were in constant contact with thinkers and writers from Africa and the African diaspora, many of them Marxists, and they quickly acquired a keen political education through these encounters. They read Aimé Césaire, the Martinican poet, Léopold Sédar Senghor, Senegal's first president, and Sheikh Anta Diop. They met Jean-Paul Sartre, Jacques Vergès, and members of the French working class in order to familiarize themselves with the struggles of the European proletariat. Dos Santos and De Andrade wrote for the Pan-African Quarterly Cultural, Political, and Literary magazine, Présence Africaine, through which they made a number of decisive encounters, including with uh, Moroccan poet Abdelatif Labi, who's going to come up later in the talk. They debated negritude and the decolonization of the mind, they wrote poetry and prose, and they participated in countless political demonstrations, including many for Moroccan independence. Dos Santos remembers... There were demonstrations for the return of the king to Morocco. The police invaded the university city, which was forbidden. We demonstrated saying thus, Guillaume assassin, Guillaume assassin, assassin means killer. It was General Guillaume who had been placed in Morocco as a big chief of the country. And we were shouting, out, out. Many of our colleagues Moroccan would not go out on the road to demonstrate. So in some ways, these Mozambican and Angolan and Goan intellectuals, uh, young thinkers, served as proxies for the Moroccan friends at these protests because the, their Moroccan friends would surely have been put in jail or arrested. In some ways, they had more um, liberty to demonstrate for the independence of Morocco. Braganza dos Santos and de Andrade established tight links with the anti-colonial Moroccan community in, based in Paris, such as Moroccan nationalist leader Sidi Ben Barka and other members of the monarchist and anti-colonialist party of the Estiklal. When King Mohammed V returned to Morocco and declared Moroccan independence, Aquino de Braganza immediately jumped to Morocco. He settled in Rabat in 1957 and started writing for the Moroccan journal El Estiklan, in addition to working as a personal secretary to Sidi Ben Barka. So in January 1960, when militants from five of the Portuguese colonies met in Tunis for the Conference of African People, they decided to establish a more kind of permanent office for the liberation of the Portuguese colonies, and they decided on Rabat because Braganza was there. They brought together, for a symposium in Casablanca in 1961, they brought together liberation groups from Guinea-Bissau, Cap Verde, Mozambique, Angola, Sao Tome and Principi, basically all the Portuguese colonies. 
And this conference lured more Lusophone militants to establish themselves in Rabat, including our very own poet Marcelino dos Santos. And Mario Pinto de Andrade was elected president of, of this organization, the CUNCP, and started regularly traveling back and forth between Conakry and Rabat until he eventually moved to Rabat with his wife, film director Sarah Maldoror, and their two daughters. So by 1963, all three of these men had moved from Paris to Rabat, and they reunited at last and worked in concert to rile up international support for their organization and for the liberation of the Portuguese colonies. After Paris, Rabat became a new center of pan-African intellectual and cultural life. Rabat, however, had one advantage over Paris. It was not the metropole, but the African continent itself, and it was liberated. So the streets of Rabat in the early 1960s, writes one poet, were alive with the dreams of the students sitting in cafes and restaurants, restaurants drinking stork beer and talking about the revolution. It was the time of Sikutore and Nkrumah, of the struggles against the Portuguese colonizer, the last to cling to a bygone era. The bubbling energy that had animated these young poet-politicians in Paris was able to overflow in Rabat, where they were no longer dependent on French hospitality, and where the Moroccan government basically gave them all the fixings of a budding state. They gave them money, legitimacy, and military training. At the end of April 1961, Marcelino dos Santos wrote to King Hassan II, who had succeeded his father for King of Morocco, thanking him for his aid in organizing the Conference of the Portuguese Colonies, a support which he says will forever stay engraved in the memory of our children. Counting on Hassan II's continued support, Dos Santos asked if the king could provide a monthly stipend of 5,000 dirham for an office, a residence in the general secretary, and general office staples, as well as Moroccan passports to the militants who would need them. He also requested money for publishing brochures in English, French, Arabic, and Portuguese about the CONCP, the Conference of Portuguese Colonies, as well as access, he also asked for access to the Moroccan radio in order to broadcast call to arms to Moroccan, African, and European audience. A couple of months later, he actually explains to a colleague that now, henceforth, any refugee of a Portuguese colony would be welcome in Morocco. They will only have to say that they're a political refugee of the Portuguese colonies. And in fact, Mario, they, all three of them had at some point Moroccan nationality, Moroccan passports. He complained, however, that the Moroccan government had still not approved the money for the brochure or access to the Moroccan radio. And he, he says he hoped these issues would be resolved soon, inshallah which, you know, idiomatically kind of demonstrates the imprints of his stay in Morocco on, his, on the vocabulary of this man who is primarily a Kingala, I think, in Portuguese speaker. So at some point in December 1961, the issues with the radio and the publication were resolved, and they received money from the Moroccan government, and they were able to print out a regular bulletin and make pronouncements on the Moroccan radio. This is an example of the bulletin that they printed out. It informed of the happenings in the Portuguese colonies and demonstrated the organization's support for other liberation struggles, such as that of the Algerian people. It was written in French instead of Portuguese, interestingly, and it was addressed to both Portuguese subjects but also to the Moroccan people, referred to as Moroccan brothers. By 1961, Mario de Andrade claimed Morocco had become the plaque tournante, he said, the nerve center of the nationalists from the Portuguese colonies, providing room and board as well as military training to dozens of young men from the Portuguese colonies. And here you see, for example, this is March of 1962 in Rabat. Here's Rabat Kesha from the ANC, Marcelino dos Santos from, um, so as I said, from Mozambique, Amelia Fonseca, who's there representing, I believe, Guinea-Bissau, Nelson Mandela from the ANC, who visited several times uh, Morocco to visit the camps, uh, the military training camps, and Mario Pinto de Andrade, and then Aquino de Braganza. So you have uh, all of them there in Rabat, showing that it had become the nerve center. This is where people were traveling to to talk about African liberation. 
Actually, according to the first commander of the Exercito Popular de Libertasao de Angola, the basically the Angolan fighter guerrilla, the first contingent of 80 MPLA fighters were trained in Morocco, fighters who constitute the embryo of the guerrilla. And here you see them behind, being sworn in, taking the oath of service in Rabat, in the presence of Agustino Neto, who became the first president of, of Angola, Africano Neto, and Mario Pinto de Andrade. Um, this is July 1962. And here you have Amilcar Cabral, the revolutionary, uh, revolutionary Fabien Verde, with a group of young militants receiving military training in Rabat, or in Morocco, in February 1962. So a bunch of these guerrilla members were trained in three different camps across Morocco and went on then to become generals and leading members of the liberation movements. In fact, one little anecdote I found recently was that they referred to their outfits in the MPLA or in the, in the liberation armies in Angola and Mozambique as sakadu, which was came from the word sakadu, which they learned in in Morocco and Algeria in various training facilities um, for you know backpack, but it eventually became the, the entire out, outfit was called sakadu. So in February 1961, Mohammed V's death and and Hassan II's ascent to power. This eventually tempered Morocco's radical and pro-Eastern rhetoric. Not immediately, as you can see, things continued until about 1963, but eventually Morocco kind of tempered its position as this nerve center of, for Pierre Rouge. And by 1965, Aquino de Braganza, Marcelino dos Santos, and Mario de Andrade, all three men here, had eventually deserted Rabat for Algiers. And this is when Algiers really becomes kind of the nerve center of the liberation movements. But despite their move to Algiers, these militants didn't break their contact with Moroccan friends and militants. Mario de Andrade and Marcelino de Santos in particular continued to travel to Morocco on a regular basis. And all these militant artists convened for the Pan-African Festival of Algiers in July 1969 with a bunch of their Moroccan friends. But perhaps more important still than the individual relationships that knit together the Moroccans to the Mozambicans and Angolans was the precedent people like Dos Santos, Braganza, and Mario de Andrade set. They argued that poetry was part of the politicians' arsenal. Um, literature, art were part of the politicians' arsenal. A previous generation of black poets, for those of you who are familiar with the Negritude movement, Aimé Césaire, Léopold Cédar Senghor, and Léon Gontra Damas, had already started using poetry as a form of self-assertion, as a means to regain a sense of dignity, as a way of claiming that the colonizer or slaver's language, or claiming it for one's own, and in order to bring the black man into the universal civilization. This is what they had called negritude. But these guys, these Luso-African poets, took negritude's battle one step further. They had no intention of limiting their poetry to delineating their identity. Instead, they hoped to create a new identity. Poetry, they planned to overhaul the current civilization, not join it. They were planning political change th through literature. And this vision is what inspired the birth of journals such as Moroccan literary journal Souf. This journal was created in March 1966. In Rabat, a group of young Moroccan poets and artists, avid readers of Franz Fanon and Aimé Césaire, discontent with the possibilities that the Moroccan artistic institutions had to offer, started to print their own zine, a shabby 30-something pager with very limited distribution, mostly word of mouth. Inspired by poets Abdel Latif Lahabi, Mostafa Nisabouri, and Mostafa Nisabouri's encounter with this guy, Mohamed Melehi, a painter, the Souf team included a number of Moroccans, all young and decidedly committed to a new world. As you can see, this is a, the generation below our Mozambican and Angolan Lusophone poets. So these guys were really inspired by those other guys. Collaborators flocked to Souffle. Tahar Benjadun remembers Souffle as a family, he said. He actually published his first poem, L'Aube des Dalles, in the journal's 12th issue in 1968, and has since become quite famous. He's probably the most well-known Moroccan writer in France now.
From the beginning, Souf was a call to arms. Labi opened the journal thus, something is brewing in Africa. And he claimed that Souf did not limit itself to one niche or minaret, nor did it recognize any borders. Maghrebi, African, European, and all other friends were invited to participate in what he called our modest enterprise. Over the course of its seven years of publication from 1966 to 1973, Souf rapidly became a pan-African forum for poets on all fronts, from Haitian poet René de Pesse, to Moroccan novelist Tahar Benjaloun, to Algerian writer Malek Aloula, to insurgent writer insurgent Mario de Andrade, we just heard about. Working in tandem with these writers, especially Mario de Andrade, the journal provided a platform to discuss the great issues of the decade. Decolonization, decolonization of the mind particularly, Marxism, Leninism, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, civil rights in the United States, and of course Portuguese colonialism. Very few publications have given such a window to international events at the time, and rarer still were publications that brought a North African perspective or voice to this international arena. By the late 1960s, the members of Souffle became active members, so of this transnational network of revolutionary artists and intellectuals, all decidedly anti-capitalist, anti-colonial, and anti-imperial, a network whose primary concern was to decolonize consciousness and culture. The revolutionary and pan-African bet Soufa gradually took was largely due to the group's encounter with intellectual and militants from the Lusophone world, our very own Mario de Andrade, Marcelino dos Santos, and Aquino de Braganza. Abdel Latif Labi, one of the founders of the journal, had met these poets in the early 1960s in Rabat, and he maintained strong ties with them, and started including their work in the spring of 1968, so a couple years after the journal was created. Soufa's ninth issue, published in the spring of 1968, illustrates this influence. Almost entirely dedicated to the Cultural Congress of Havana, the issue included a series of essays curated by Mario de Andrade, relaying the anti-negritude and third-worldist message of the Congress to Souf's readership. The Cultural Congress of Havana, organized by the Cuban government in January 1968, brought together intellectuals from around the world, over 70 countries, in an effort to garner political support for the fight of the masses against imperialism. The two essays that de Andrade decided to present to Souf's readership were virulent critiques of negritude pronounced by Haitian poet René de Pesse and Ghanaian playwright Nene Kali. Andrade explained that it was of dire importance for all those living in the 1968 post-colonial world to dismiss negritude and recognize the importance of political engagement. And by giving prime time to thinkers such as Mario de Andrade, René de Pesse, René Kali, Souf was positioning itself as a Maghrebi literary journal that spoke to and for people across Africa and the Third World and about the central intellectual debates of the era, negritude in this case. The dossier on the Congress of Havana ended with a short piece by Mario de Andrade entitled Culture et Lutte Armée. In his typical way, Andrade blended revolutionary rhetoric with excerpts from poetry to argue that the most poetic of acts was to revolt against one's own dispossession through violence. Other hands will beat the drums of guerrilla victory in Guinea, he wrote. In the meantime, go tell the Portuguese to stop scaring us in the bush. For there is new blood that shoulders the gun. For there is young blood to defend the homeland. Only fire will make you leave. O oh, Portuguese, only the fire of the gun, only the finger on the trigger will make you leave. You can tell the violence in this text. So the ninth issue and this poem set the tone for four years of Souf's, the last four years of Souf's tenure as a literary journal. The poetry would be a weapon or it would not be published. And this violence of the text, Labi was clear. He, he really wanted us to understand that it wasn't what he says, a mere shrug of hairy marijuana dealers. He really wanted to set a clear contrast between what was going on in this journal, between this generation of uh, militants, 
and what he saw in the United States. He says, leave us alone with these beatniks or other marchers of war and peace. We are way too anchored, way too racialized for that. So he really would not be dismissed as like anti-Vietnam War, hairy marijuana dealer or hippie. He said this ran much deeper for people in, uh, who participated in Suf. It was in their body, in their skin. It was racialized. In 1970, the Souf's 19th edition, the editors actually decided to dedicate an entire issue to the fight in the Portuguese colonies. Directed by Mario de Andrade and including texts from Amilcar Cabral and Agustino Neto, as I mentioned earlier, he was the first president of Angola, the issue came complete with a small presentation at each Portuguese colony, poems and manifestos. Introducing this special issue, the Souf team explains that the fight led by the Mozambican and Angolan militants against Portuguese ultra-colonialism was one of the most advanced in Africa. They reflected on the strategies and realized that the enemy was the same in Mozambique as in Palestine, Eritrea, or South Africa. And so Souf decided to call this issue Afrique en seul et même combat, Africa won in the same battle. They presented the anti-colonial struggles in South Africa, Namibia, Zimbabwe, Eritrea, Chad, and the Sahara on top of their focus on the MPLA and the Frelimo. The whole time underlining the fact that these battles could only be won through inter-African cooperation. And actually in this issue, there are two caricatures, which is kind of rare in, in Souffle. This one is done by Siné, a pretty famous French caricaturist. He actually, he died in the Charlie Hebdo attacks. This is, I think, just a capitalist. You can tell from the top hat and the bow tie and general snooty expression. And here you have very caricatured versions of an Arab man and an African man serving him basically a cocktail Molotov. Here again is a capitalist. Again, the top hat bow tie, pretty clear signs, and he has been forced to drop diamonds, copper, cocoa, petrol, and arms by the twin hands of the Arab and African revolution. So again, both these caricatures, you can see, are really arguing for inter-African and Arab and African cooperation in the fight against global imperialism and capitalism. Appropriately for a literary review, Souf closed this 19th issue, Afrique en seul et même combat, with a report by the Frelimo and written by Marcelino de Santos, so the Frelimo, the Mozambican liberation organization, a report dedicated to poetry and demonstrating what poetry can be, what it works in service of the struggles of the African masses. The Lusophone poet, Dos Santos explained, gave birth to the new nation. They named its heroes. They used their art as a rallying cry. And it is because there never will I ever, ever, ever retreat without my people winning here in Mozambique, wrote Marcelino Santos in the report. He said that these Lusophone poets were an entirely new breed of human. In the old world, poetry was an exceptional art for exceptional men. Poetry in the new world, however, was no longer a specialization, for there is no longer the poet once everyone is a poet. Tomorrow there will be no masters, for everyone will have become master of themselves. This is a lesson of poetry, and it is essential to our revolution, he wrote. The poems in this report, explained to Santos, were just the tip of the iceberg of poetic production in the Portuguese colonies, a testament to the quantity of creative energy liberated by the revolution. To the Frelimo poets, the revolution had liberated the power of speech in the Portuguese colonies, and all had become poets. Like the members of Souf, the Lusophone poets claimed to make a non-elitist poetry, one that every man and woman could understand and perhaps even write. A poetry entrenched in reality, coarse and beautiful as it was. Their material, they all claimed, was life itself. Throughout the preparation of Souf's 19th issue, so again, this, this issue, Dabi, the founder of Souf and Andrade, were in close correspondence, exchanging notes, requesting edits, and discussing content. The letters, though to the point, bear witness to the intimacy of their relationship through the frequency of the exchanges, the use of tu, and the closing fraternellement. 
After what appears as a somewhat frantic back and forth, Lavi wrote to Andrade, reassuring him that no matter the limits of this dossier, Souf would not stop with this first round of information about the anti-Portuguese colonial struggle. In future issues, he averred, we will attempt, with your help, to give room any time possible to the liberation struggles in Africa. And in fact, as early as February 1971, he wrote Andrade asking him for help with the next issue of Souffle. But Lavi was never quite able to make right on his promise to Andrade to include more and more African content, because in two issues later, tragedy struck, the members of Souffle were arrested by the Moroccan government, imprisoned, and tortured. The journal staff had never attempted to conceal its increasingly political bent and its collaboration with the Marxist-Leninist groups. On the contrary, Souf's revolutionary project was declaimed for all to hear without much prudence, for prudence was not fashionable, and what could a journal risk? In Abdel Latif Labi and a few other members of Souf were arrested in January 1972. In September 1973, the verdict of their trial was given. Labi was condemned to 10 years in prison. He actually he got out after eight years, but he spent eight years in jail and was tortured by the Moroccan government. In 1976, from his cell in the Kenitra prison in Morocco, he wrote a letter to his friend Mario de Andrade. The letter is affectionate and melancholic. It's a testament to the importance that the men played in each other's life. He says, where are you now, Mario? War, prison, made us lose touch. He explained that prison didn't prevent him from following with close attention the struggles in Mozambique, Angola, and Guinea, and the fall of the Portuguese Prime Minister Marcelo Caetano. He thanked de Andrade, with whom the Luso-African crusade against the colonial powers could not have erupted into the Arab consciousness. For it was Andrade who introduced Labi to, the, to so many brave fighters from Mozambique and Angola, such as Marcelino dos Santos. It was de Andrade with which Labi worked in Rabat and Algiers for the decolonization of the mind, and against the turncoat African dictators who touted a humanism à la européenne. Mario, my brother in arms, finishes Labi, my wish is to hold you against me a day in Luanda in peace, to see in your laughing and intelligent eyes the joy and gravity of the tasks of rebuilding in the pursuit of the revolution inspire. So that's the last contact between them. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, Subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.